And that's what we're talking about today as we take a look at the Spiritual Op app. We're talking about the invisible world behind some of our very visible attitudes, behaviors, struggles, and crises that we faced in our life. And this app is all about how the believer's spiritual authority in the battle that we're engaged in with the powers of darkness, including the devil and his cohorts or his assistants, as I like to call them. Now, our emphasis in this spiritual op app is the same as what Jesus' emphasis was and what he demonstrated for us in this story with the demonized man today. That our authority in Christ is supreme over the enemy. There's two errors that often occur, though, when we're talking about the enemy, and two camps kind of. On the one side are the people who say they don't believe that the devil's really real. He's just a figment of our imagination. He's just a general term for evil, but he's not a real being. That's one side of the error as we face this battle. The other side of that error is to blame him for everything. The devil's behind every struggle, every crisis, every difficulty in my life, all of the character deficits that I'm struggling with in my life. And neither of these two places are what the scripture really teaches us about this battle. We're going to find ourselves um, in in a composite of those together. And my prayer today is that each one of us would come away with an understanding, an awareness, a stronger awareness. We really are in a battle. And secondly, that we'd understand the strategies that the devil comes, that the devil throws our way, not so we can bask in those or honor him so that we know what he's up to and can fight him appropriately. And thirdly, that we'd take authority that we have in Jesus Christ, and together we'd commit that we are going to not allow anyone or anything to interfere, interrupt, or stop our relationship with Jesus Christ, which is his goal, and the freedom that he purchased for us. And that together we'd be committed to being people who are submitted to Jesus and filled with his spirit so that the enemy's access to our lives would be limited. So in case you haven't noticed, there is a battle going on and the scripture is full of imagery. And I know there's people out there, you may be more pacifistic in nature. You might be like my grandma who just hated guns and all things associated with war and violence. Um, But the truth is scripture portrays this invisible realm that we're talking about, these spiritual forces in high places, both the light and the dark, as there's a battle, there's a war going on. It uses lots of imagery for it. There's imagery as in the devil is called a strong man who's fully armed. Or captives. Jesus came to set the captives free. The Bible talks about evil powers or forces or principalities. There's weapons talked about in Scripture. And there's a struggle against these evil forces talked about in Scripture. And and Paul calls our entire Christian walk a fight of faith. And then there's the desires of our flesh that wage war against our soul, as Paul put it. So he doesn't mind using the war word. And then Paul talks about the flaming arrows of the evil one, speaking about the lies and things that he, he gives to us. But he uses this weaponry imagery. And he even refers to some of his fellow workers, people who've worked alongside of him in the gospel, as his fellow soldiers, that were soldiers in a war. And in Jude 3, we're told to contend or fight for the faith. But the truth is, the end of the whole story we've already been given. In Revelation 20, 
We're told that this battle that we're engaged in on a daily basis, there is an end to it. And it comes in Revelations 20, at the end of this world as we know it, when the devil and Jesus engage in one final cosmic battle and the final vestiges of Satan's limited power that he's been allowed to have during this time and for this season will be given up forever, once and for all. He'll be defeated and will be thrown in a fiery lake of sulfur. And Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, will prevail over all the powers of darkness. That's right, that's right. Well... The point of all this is that we know the outcome of this war, even though we're daily engaged in a variety of kinds of battles in it. And Jesus does win. But we have to be serious about it because in the meantime, Satan has one goal, to take as many people with him as possible. That's his goal. And John tells us that he describes it this way, that he comes to still kill, and destroy. That's his mission statement right there as opposed to Jesus' mission statement, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And those two opposite missions are constantly at war with each other every day in our lives. So we recognize there's a battle going on, but we also have that question about, is there more than one enemy? And you know what? There really is. In Scripture, there's three enemies identified I'd like to call it three fronts in a war. You know, in Iraq, Afghanistan, you can go back to World War II. Wars are not fought on one front. And sometimes they describe fronts by the direction they are, but sometimes by where they take place. So if you like to think of a front by air, by land, and by sea, we fight in different ways. We have drones that are going over Afghanistan and Iraq and dropping bombs on targets that have been identified And we have our forces, both Marines and Army, on land doing stuff. And then we have people out on ships in the Middle East, and they're doing stuff, reconnaissance and other kinds of things, all part of that battle. And we have these three fronts. These three fronts are this. First of all, our flesh, Scripture identifies. Secondly, the world. Thirdly, the devil himself and his assistants. Let's take a look at those three briefly just to identify these three enemies. First of all, our flesh. That's the Bible term for the sin nature, our inward inclination toward evil or sin. Paul described it well in Romans 7 when he said, the very good that I want to do, I don't do. And the very thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. Ever been there? Yeah, yeah. That's called a battle with our flesh. That's one of the fronts in the war, trying to lure us away from Jesus Christ. But there's a second enemy, and it's called the world. And this one, I like my favorite place to, that this is mentioned in Scripture is Romans 12, the first two verses, when it says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it goes on to say more. But this world, what's it talking about there? It's talking about the world systems of belief and the world mindsets. And just to give you an illustration of this particular enemy, let's just take a look at marriage, something that God ordained, the institution of marriage. So what is the world, the enemy in that saying, and what what does God say about marriage? Well, God says that a marriage commitment is for as long as we both shall live. But what is the current world thought, world mindset on that? It's 
marriage is, is for as long as we both shall love or for as long as we both shall be happy. There's a big difference between those two. And this, the world's is at odds with God's. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about that front in the war. And then thirdly is Satan himself. We have a war going on with him, with he and his assistants. And that's what's represented here in this story today. Satan is a powerful created being. And he decided to rebel against God in heaven and take as many fellow citizens as he could with him in that rebellion. So he did. He has some helpers. He has some assistants. So some people say that this battle, these three enemies, that it's all the world or it's all my sin nature that's causing me problems. Oh, that's just the way I am. That's my personality. You know, I'm struggling with, it's all about me. I'm fighting me. And some people say it's all about the world. It's all their influence. It's other people's fault. And over here, some people say it's all the devil's fault. But the truth is, these three fronts are more like this rope that I have, this three-stranded rope. So I have Satan, and I have the world, and I have my flesh, my sin nature. And all three of these forces work together in our lives to do one thing, destroy us, to tie us up, bind us up, hold us captive to the enemy's desires. They work together like that, and there's only one way to be freed from them, and that's in Jesus Christ, to break free. And they all require a Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-saturated, or Holy Spirit-filled life if we want to do that, if we want to break free. We can't battle this three-pronged attack in our own strength. Now, in this encounter with this demonized man, we understand that we are looking at a guy who is fighting that, uh, primarily that first enemy, that is Satan and his cohorts. But we don't really know the rest of his story, so we don't know if some of those other areas that his flesh and the world systems didn't have something to do with that demonic influence. So what about in our lives? What does this triple front look like in our lives and what we encounter? Jared and I were living in Bend, Oregon, and we were living in the middle of a leadership transition in our district, and people were mad at each other, and people disagreed about the decisions being made, and there was confusion about what was really going to work and what wasn't, and who had authority to make that decision. And uh, I think some of you have been in these situations in your own work lives. So all these things were going on, and I sat down to do some analysis. And I was analyzing the situation. Okay, here's I was looking at personalities. I was looking at the sin nature of people's response to disappointment and discouragement in their lives and, and uh, selfishness on the part of some people. And I was looking at the world systems, that is, our man-made systems of leadership appointment, where we try to, the best to, our ability, uh, to the best of our abilities, match what God's up to. And I, so I was analyzing it by these two fronts on this threefold front. And that night I went to bed. I wasn't coming up with a lot of answers, just a lot of analysis. Ever been there? Yeah, didn't have any solutions. But that night I went to bed and I had an unusual experience. I had a dream. And in the dream, Jared and I were walking down a road and our pastor who had mentored us and sent us out as church planters, Roy Hicks Jr., met us on the road. 
And when he met us, he was intense, which was in his personality to be, but he was very intense and focused on us. And he grabbed our arms like you would somebody, you know, come with me, come with me. And he grabbed us both by the elbow and he was pumping our arms. And he said, remember Ephesians 6.12. Remember Ephesians 6.12. And he said our names. I woke up in the morning and it was as clear as daylight. I knew that that passage was right in the middle of a verse of verses about this war that's going on in our lives between um, the powers of God and the power of darkness. And it's this verse in Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And it was just like God was saying, Anne, you've been all wrong. Your analysis here was incomplete. Because this battle involves, has the assistance of, of the devil. His cohorts are at work in this divisiveness, in this fighting, in this confusion. And you need to tackle it that way. You need to tackle it in prayer and bring down those strongholds. Totally changed the, the way I was approaching that battle. That's why it's good to depend on Jesus Christ when we're in the middle of those battles. He can show us. So my question for you is, what does that look like in your life, this three-pronged attack and this, the power of the enemy at work in your life? So what about that self-talk when you're driving home from work and you have those thoughts of, I'm no good, I'm a failure, I've, I keep doing stupid mistakes at work, this job isn't going to last I'm in a short path to nowhere. What about that depression that you've been dealing with for months, maybe even years? And you've been fighting it with medication and, and, um, or just gutting it up, trying to do it in your own strength. What about that rebellion in your teenager's life that's out of control, but you've decided it's just a stage? Isn't this what kids go through nowadays? Or that attraction that you've felt toward that person at work and you've just written it off as, ah, that's my flesh. That's me wanting something I can't have. But there's more to it than that, maybe. Or what about that person or friend or neighbor that persistently is rejecting your sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? When you try to share your story, when you try to invite them to come to Evergreen with you, there's just a persistent rejection of the gospel of Christ. Could there be more to it than that? Second Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. When was the last time that you considered that a relational conflict or one of these other situations that I just mentioned might really be rooted in demonic opposition? That that might be one of the areas that's being fought? Well, what do you do when you face this kind of spiritual battle? There's three things that we're going to mention in that battle today. First of all, take your authority, know your enemy's strategies, and finally, secure your house. And we're going to take a look at these three features in our spiritual offset. This first one, take your authority. Now, the crowd that was watching Jesus here in this account of the demonized man. It says they were amazed at his authority. And that was even before this man had raised a ruckus and started shrieking and, and talking to Jesus. 
And it stood out to the crowd who were used to listening to the teachers of the law. So what was so different? Well, the teachers of law of the law would quibble and argue and interrupt each other. And there was a lot of disagreement about God's word when they would teach from it. And it would lack this clarity and confidence and straightforwardness that Jesus had. And the word here that they used for authority is a word of mastery and jurisdiction and competency. Jesus had the jurisdiction. He had the authority. He had the sphere of influence. He had the power, if you were, the very power of God to deal with what he was talking about. He knew what he was talking about. And he had the authority to deal with it. And they recognized this. His teaching was much more straightforward than anything they were getting from the teachers of the law. And so they saw the authority of God. Because this word for authority indicated that right and authority and power that God alone possesses. And they picked up on that, even in his communication. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He understood his authority. He knew that these created beings, which is what Satan and his cohorts are, without omniscience and omnipresence, they didn't, weren't all knowing and all present as he was, that they were submitted to him, that he had authority to tell them where to go. So he took his rightful authority and he told them where to go. He essentially told them, shut up and get out. Now, I know some of your moms told you not to say shut up, but if you're going to say shut up, the devil's the right one to say it to, okay? So the man convulsed and the, de- the demon came out. And we take our rightful authority in Christ by rebuking demonic influence wherever we find it. We tell them what to do and where to go. And they have to obey us when we're in Christ Jesus, when we know the Lord. I was at a kid's camp in the southeast part of our country and not a place where I really anticipated having an encounter like Jesus had here. But one day we were leading the kids in worship and uh, there was a little girl, I happen to know her name already, her name was Ruby. And as we worshiped, she curled up into the closest thing to a fetal position that you could in a chair. And her eyes became unfocused and she was crying uncontrollably. So it was the middle of the kids' worship time, and I didn't know a lot of her story yet, so I just went back, sat next to her, and placed my um, arm on her shoulder, around her shoulder, and just prayed for her silently as the worship continued. So at the end of our session with the kids that day, then I sat with her, and I invited a couple of other leaders, and we prayed over what we discerned was the demonic influence happening in Ruby's life. And... As we prayed and drove out that demonic influence, it was amazing, the transformation. Because she came out from her curled-up position there in her chair. She sat up straight. Her eyes became focused. She stopped her crying, and she began to smile. And then we found out her story. You see, she had made it to camp that week through a Christian foster family that she'd been placed in two days before camp. She came from a home of horrendous activity abuse and drugs and other things, which is why they'd pulled her from it. So this little girl, just like other children in Scripture, it's usually adults that have let him in and given him access. But she was a changed person. Now, some people I know when they hear a story, I go, oh, I hope that doesn't happen to me. You know, what if that happened on your job? You encountered somebody that you identified was experiencing demonic influence. 
Well, the truth is that we have authority in Christ and we don't have to be afraid of demonic influence. First John 4, 4, that's what John's talking about. He's talking about the discerning of spirits, being able to tell whether something's from God or not from God. And he says these words, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Greater is he who is within you than the one who is in the world. Love that verse. Love that verse. I remind myself of that when I'm going into difficult situations or places where I know I might encounter the enemy's strategies. So we have this first piece of taking hold in the battle by taking our authority. But it's also important to know your enemy's strategies. Now, there's an interesting verse in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. Paul's agreeing to forgive a brother in the Corinthian church along with them. And he says this interesting thing. I'm going to do this in order that Satan might not outwit us because we are not unaware of his schemes or his strategies. Now, I'm going to go quickly through a list of his strategies because we're not going to give him more attention than he needs, but it is insightful for us to understand how he might approach us in our life. The first one is accusation is one of his strategies. And Revelations 12, 10 says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He's also a liar. Lies are one of his strategy. He's called the father of lies in John 8, 44. He's an opposer or opposition to what God wants in our lives. The word Satan means adversary. One of the most poignant stories of this is in Mark 8, 33, when Jesus turned and rebuked Peter, who was telling him he didn't need to go to the cross. And he said, get behind me, Satan, adversary. You have in mind, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That's what this opposition strategy is all about, is getting us off of what God wants for our life and on to what some other things. And then he's a slanderer. That's another one of his strategies in life. Devil means slanderer. And 1 Peter 5.8, your enemy, the devil or the slanderer, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So he's the master of slams and put downs. He's a counterfeiter. Lucifer, another one of his names, which means shining one or son of the morning. And we're told in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. This means that he takes things that are good and mimics them. But in the middle of it, as Jared shared last week, is that hook. He's a tempter. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. Paul writes these words, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts with you might have been useless. He exploits wonderful desires in our lives and then pollutes them by offering us shortcuts, which is what a lot of temptations are about. And these shortcuts lead us to dead ends. He's a promoter, John 12, 31. Jesus said, now the prince of this world will be driven out. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is called the God of this age. That means he's the promoter of false systems of thinking and belief. He sucks people in to whole ways of thinking that will kill, steal, and destroy. Just this year alone in the Hillsborough School District, three kids have OD'd on prescription drugs and been killed. You think that that's just their flesh operating? That's a very real enemy at work. 
to undermine kids at a very young age. The devil's an opportunist. He looks for vulnerable moments in our lives. Luke 4.13, he did this with Jesus. When he had finished all his tempting of Jesus, it says he left him for an opportune time. He's an opportunist. He looks for vulnerable moments in our life. So, enough about him. In terms of his strategies, you can look at those further later if you want to recognize one that might be happening in your own life. But back to our encounter in Mark. How did a synagogue attendee end up demonized anyway? I mean, this wasn't just some guy who wandered in off the street who'd never been there before. With all of these strategies that we've mentioned of Satan, how can I avoid becoming like this guy that Jesus had to deliver? Well, it comes down to these three things we're talking about. We have to take the authority that Christ has given us. We have to know our enemy's strategies. And this final one, and most importantly, we have to secure our house. You might be saying, what do you mean by that, Anne? Secure your house. Well, Jesus is the one who chose to use our lives and the metaphor of our lives as a house as it regards demonic influence. So in Matthew, the 12th chapter, he tells us about a man who had a demon cast out of him. And the demon went out looking for another place to live. And he didn't find one. And so he went back to the man that he had previously come out of. And he saw that the house was swept and clean and in order, but it was unoccupied. And so he went and got some of his friends, his other fellow spirits, and they went and invaded that man's life, inhabited it, and his condition was worse than at the first. What's the point? You need to secure your house. It's not enough to get rid of sin in our life or to stop doing something. It it requires more than that. So how do you secure your house? Well, I just want to suggest these three things. First of all, receive the truth, tell the truth, and live the truth. Those three things together will have a house that's well secured. So let's take a look at that first one. Receive the truth. This means invite a new occupant to your house. We're talking about if you don't know Jesus Christ and he's not living inside of you by the power of his Holy Spirit, then you have a house that has a lot of access to the enemy. The doors are opened. They're not just unlocked, they're open if you don't have Jesus living inside of you. And so I'd encourage you today, this is your opportunity to say yes to Jesus Christ, to begin a relationship with him, to accept what he did for you on the cross and accept his love for you, which is why he did it, and begin that relationship. 1 John 5, 4 says that for everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it? that overcomes the world? Only the person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This first step is critical in securing your house. you got to fill the residence up with Jesus Christ. That second one, then, is tell the truth. This is all about giving Jesus access to every room in your house. This means to do what we call being honest to God. In recovery terms, we say that you have to make a um, fearless moral inventory of your life. We can't hide areas of our life from Christ. If you use the metaphor of a house, I'm going to give you every room in my house, Christ, except the bedroom. 
I'm going to give you every room in my house except the study. I've filled my mind with all these worldly mindsets. But the rest of my life is for you, God. Or I'm acting out in sexually immoral ways, but the rest of my life is for you, God. That's what we're talking about. When we do this, when we shut God out of a room of our house and we open that room by following some of Satan's strategies, then we end up giving access. Oh, our house isn't as secure. It's as though we unlock the door. Some people have even, I'd say, taken the door off the hinges and said, come on in. This is how a demonized man could end up in a synagogue as a regular attendee. It's how a person could sit out here week after week and yet be living horrendous opposition throughout the week by the enemy. So how do we? What are some of those areas? I mentioned sexual immorality and drunkenness. These ones get a lot of attention. But you know the Bible in Romans 1 and in 1 Corinthians 6 and in James, there's a lot of different activities that might surprise you. You know that gossip is one of the ways that we unlock the door? Did you know that being disobedient to parents is a way that we unlock the door or take it off the hinges and invite the enemy's activity in our life? Did you know that being a person who stirs up strife in relationships, you cause a lot of fights, you create a lot of drama, that that's a way to open the door to the enemy in our lives? You know, being greedy is one of those things that opens the door to the wrong person, not to Jesus Christ. So we want to be people who tell the truth in our lives. And I want to let you know, you have good company if you feel like you have one of those shameful, secret things that's been going on in your life and you're hesitant to just bring it all out in the open to God. Because Paul talks to us out of, in 1 Corinthians and tells us that we have renounced secret and shameful ways. He's not saying they have renounced secret and shameful ways. He's referring to he and the rest of the disciples with him. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. That's what we have to do. You're in good company if you need to do that. Many great believers in Christ have had to take that step of saying, I'm going to shut every room off to the enemy in my house. I'm going to open up every door, even the closets in my life are going to be open to the influence and the power of God through the power of his spirit. Then there's this third piece, which is live the truth. This is all about making it hard to gain unauthorized entry into your life. James 4, verse 7 says it this way. Submit to God, therefore, and resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Submitting your life in its entirety. That's what we're talking about when we say live the truth. We're talking about lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just my ticket to heaven. He is my Savior and my Lord. And that means he's the new boss of my life. He's the new director of my life, whatever term you like to use. He can tell me what to do, where to go, what to say. As Jared put it last year, uh, last week, I keep saying last year, our decisions, our thoughts, our actions, every one of them reflects worship to someone or something. The question is, who are we worshiping with that decision or that act? Or that thought. And that's what this living the truth is about. It's about living a submitted life. Lord, is that what you would say? Mm, Maybe I better hold my tongue this time. Lord, is that what you would do? Mm, Maybe I need to not do that particular activity. Submitting every act of obedience to God slams the door on the enemy. And I like to think of it that way. When I'm feeling tempted to do the opposite activity from what I know Jesus would want me to do. Well, 
prayer is our communication tool in this battle. It's not unusual. If you think of the metaphor of war, it's entirely essential. If you're engaged in a battle, periodically you check in, usually pretty regularly with your commander-in-chief. And that's why it's so important. That's why prayer is so important. It is our communication with our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. And it's in that communication that we let him evaluate what's going on in our life, that we receive new orders from him. Hey, you were going this direction. I have a new plan over here. And where we receive things from him that refresh us, that help us keep going in this battle.